Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by MSP. M is an education reporter for MoCo360 Media, which covers Montgomery County, Maryland intensely online at moco360.media. M is transgender and goes by the pronouns they, them. They've previously worked as a transcriptionist and court reporter and as an investigator for a group that worked with religious organizations on improving their responses, improving and evaluating their responses to sexual abuse. Hi, Em. Hey, it's great to chat with you. Emma's a graduate of the Community College of Baltimore, summa cum laude from Thomas Edison State University with a master's from American University. So with all of that, what's your journalism origin story? Oh boy. I kind of stumbled into journalism a little bit. It was not one of those things where I like grew up and always wanted to be in a newsroom kind of a thing. I never even really was exposed to the news growing up, but I always knew that I wanted to write. I've always been very passionate about writing. And as a kid that looked like creative writing, I loved to write. I literally wrote mystery novels when I was like eight years old. And then the older I got, the more I got interested in writing things that would have an impact on people and just help people better empathize with each other and understand each other. And I spent about eight to nine years as a court reporter covering all kinds of cases in Maryland and Virginia. And that really exposed me to a a wide range of issues and things and just got my wheels spinning. And I just one day was like, thought, why not journalism? Like, that sounds like a great way to, I mean, should also mention, I really loved, I kind of mentioned like mysteries, but like, I wanted to be a detective for a while as a kid. And I love that like investigative angle and like really digging into things. And then I was just like, why not journalism? Like that's the perfect mesh of both digging into stuff and like uncovering the truth kind of a thing and just writing about things and like telling people's stories. And it just and me, felt very natural. You and me both. I wanted to be Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, <laughs> I love this book. <laughs> awesome. I know that your your family background is kind of interesting. Is there anything in your family history or heritage that would have either foreshadowed this sort of career or maybe pointed away from it in some way? Definitely the latter. It's just kind of ironic to me that I ended up in journalism because I grew up in a very fundamentalist, Christian, conservative environment. I was raised Presbyterian, in the evangelical church. And yeah, there's just very much a, a distrust of media in general, of any kind of outside vo- outside voices that were not directly informed by the church or originated in the church. So there's definitely a uh, just a, a mistrust of information and a, a lack of curiosity about things that didn't already fall within a prescribed narrative. So I remember when I first told my parents that I was going to journalism school, they were like, oh, are you, that's interesting. Like, are you going to be, you know, what kind of a a narrative are they going to be spinning or whatever? And there's just a lot of distrust there, but that natural curiosity is always something that drew me to it. Did anything happen that turned them in the direction of, of, I guess, believing different things now that they see their child in it? No, sadly, they're still very much hardline Republican conservative Christians. So we've, you know, kind of gone our separate ways on that. But uh, yeah, I was just kind of found that funny. Okay. 
So I read an article that you wrote in 2021 about what it was like to be a court reporter transcribing the court case related to the shooting of Freddie Gray in Maryland in 2015, and then being a court uh, reporter in Charlottesville, Virginia, around the time of the Unite the Right rally. We've had, we've talked to reporters who actually covered that on previous episodes of this podcast. How did doing that change you? I went through a lot of personal growth between those two time periods. When I was covering the Freddie Gray trials, I was still very much in that conservative Christian mindset. I had family members who were cops. I was raised in a very white suburban household. We lived just outside of Baltimore City, and whenever we would venture into the city, my dad would crack jokes about how dangerous it was, blah, blah, blah. So I grew up very trusting of law enforcement, and that was just kind of the norm, the default. It was actually a very, very brief period of my life where I considered being got myself. And so when I was transcribing those those trials, it was very easy for me to just take the perspective that they were just going to do their jobs. It was very, you know, cut and dry for me. I didn't see any moral ambiguity there and was very kind of confused at the time by the, the disruption of public opinion around the trials and the case. And then fast forward, what, five years? I was court reporting down in Charlottesville. We had an office that was just a block away from where the Unite the Right rally took place. And I ended up transcribing an interview of one of the Nazis who flew in from California for the rally. And he was just casually talking about white supremacist leaders and stuff. And I don't know, it was, it was very surreal for me to be hearing that. And it caused a lot of introspection for me. And that was right after, no, right before, a few years before the murder of George Floyd, which was a really kind of sent me into a spiral morally about all of that. But yeah, it, it really stuck with me just hearing this person that I otherwise would have at the time been prone to just assume was a nice good old kid, but to hearing so much, hearing so much hate come out of his mouth in such a casual, easy way it was really jarring for me. And and I thought about that for many years afterward. I have a question about, about court reporting just in general. When you're doing the transcribing, do you get into patterns where you're just like almost what's said, just you're not necessarily thinking about, and this is unusual that, that you, that this kind of got you or yeah. is, okay. Yeah, definitely that. I was a digital court reporter, so I, I type like 130 words a minute. And so I would be sitting there typing a draft of the transcript while I'm listening. And it just, you know, after years, it kind of becomes ingrained in you. And a lot of it's very dry stuff, like, you know, workman's compensation stuff and medical malpractice and it's a bunch of car accidents. And it just kind of becomes rote. But there are those cases that stand out. And that was definitely one of them for me. It was very rare that I got something that interesting. Wow. So Montgomery County, Maryland is adjacent to Washington, D.C. It's the biggest county in Maryland, population of about a million. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts, uh, can you first explain the goal of, of what the organization is trying to do? Yeah. So we're a local news outlet covering Montgomery County. I, I'm biased, but I would say that we're probably the most prominent news outlet covering Montgomery County solely. And our goal is just to be providing 
full and comprehensive coverage of everything that county residents need to know, holding the government and officials accountable for the decisions that they make and the processes that they go through, just keeping people informed. Very local coverage, certainly. I mentioned all the academia for you. How did you end up at MoCo? I was born and raised in Maryland. And actually, funny enough, I, I got my grad degree at American, which is in D.C. It's just like 15 minutes outside of MoCo. And during my grad program, I covered Montgomery County in my local news class. It was my beat. And that was my first time really digging into the county. I grew up outside of Baltimore and then spent most of my childhood in Howard County, which is right next door. But this is my first time really digging into MoCo. And then I was really impressed by the level that people, residents in MoCo are so invested in the goings on of the county. People are just like really, really tuned in in a way that I was not, not familiar with. And so that really drew me to the county, I think, after school. We'll see how that manifests itself with one example in a second. But first, just what's the approach to covering? Okay, so your your education, they, they have different reporters covering different things. And you're covering an, an area that's encompassing a million people. So that's a lot of schools. What's your approach to covering the beat? It is definitely tricky. I'm one reporter covering one of the largest school districts in the nation, and that is not lost on me. So I, I'm very humble in approaching this role, and I know that there's absolutely no way that I could ever cover it all. So I definitely go into it with that mindset. But what I found is that people in Montgomery County are very gracious with reporters and willing to share things with me as they hit their plates because again there's no way I can keep track of everything but when I take the time to really connect with sources and meet with the people that I want to connect with and yeah hear from they will keep me informed when things are happening that I wouldn't necessarily catch so I think a huge part for me of this job is just relationship building and maintaining because having that network is just crucial for local journalism. And how big is the, I don't know if, if you would call it your futures list or your ideas list or just things that you might be working on at any given time? Oh my goodness, dozens <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. Now, do they range from, are they all hard news or are you thinking, hey, this is something that could be an interesting feature or profile of a person or what's the scope of what, of what, of what you've got on that list? Kind of a mix. The longer form stuff obviously sits on my plate for longer and I'm just kind of compiling things as they cross my path. The shorter, more fluff pieces are usually more breaking news or just quick turnarounds within a week. But if I'm holding on to something for weeks and weeks, it's usually like one of those hard hitting deep dive pieces where I've got to like file records requests and all that good stuff. You're largely covering hard news. And I know you said you talk to sources that's have certain story ideas come about. How else do you get your story ideas? One of the main ways that I have gotten stories in recent months is Twitter. Well, now X, but just social media in general. I don't know if this is true for other jurisdictions, but at least in MoCo, people are very vocal on social media about <laughs> not only their opinions, but like local officials will post statements and things exclusively to Twitter. So I found that's a really good way to be tuned into what's going on in the county, not just in education, but just in general. But besides that, just, you know, news alerts, keeping track of things, watching other news outlets coverage, and just, again, building relationships with folks that are in the community plugged into different aspects of the community. 
Is there a, a recent example of something good that you got from Twitter that you might not have gotten elsewhere? I mean, mainly it'll be like statements from public officials that they'll only post on Twitter. And otherwise you would never have gotten a quick reaction from them, but they posted on Twitter. So that happens on a, on a regular basis. And then also people just comment on those posts. And sometimes people have very substantive things. There's this huge recent investigation that was that the Post just published into a MCPS principal who's been accused by over 18 staff members of sexual harassment and abuse. It's this whole big thing, but I connected with definitely the best source that I've spoken with so far was just a Twitter connect. She had apparently a few years back sent an 18 page, 18 plus page document to the school district outlining recommendations for how they could improve their sexual abuse and harassment prevention policies and procedures. She's a licensed clinical social worker. And she published, she posted the whole document like on Twitter, just linked to it. And I read it and it was incredible. And I was like, wow, I need to talk to you. And we ended up having a great like 45 minute conversation today. And I would never have found her if it wasn't for Twitter. No idea that she existed. That's, but, the, yeah. that's, that's the good side of, yeah. of Twitter, certainly. You mentioned the Washington Post. Do you, and I'm curious, this might be a, a MoCo 360 kind of philosophy. Do you, does the organization view itself as like competing with uh, other outlets or is it more just focused on let's dig and dig and dig and be as comprehensive as we can regardless of who, who gets something first? Well, we definitely try to stay competitive. We definitely want okay. those scoops before other outlets. But yeah, even if, if somebody else breaks the news and it's not us, then that's okay. Then we find another angle or another way to bring a fresh perspective to that coverage. Yep. And so one of the big stories that you're covering is a continuous one over multiple months. It's about whether parents can opt their children out of elementary school level LGBTQ plus and inclusivity related education. It seems pretty heated, as most of these cases are around the country. And perhaps related, there was a story, another story you did tangential to this about how hate bias incidents in the county school system are up hugely over looking at four-year averages. It's now a legal case. The judge said that she would rule prior to the school year starting on the 28th uh, of August. The the arguments, the, uh, the argument from uh, one of the attorneys, Schoenfeld said case law has always held that mere exposure to ideas cannot be considered a substantial pressure or burden. If parents withdraw their students from public schools over the books, they're not compelled. It's a choice, he said. Evolution offends people, but there's no right to opt out of science classes. That's just a, a sampling from your article. Can you give us an overview of the development of this story and your coverage of it? Sure. This has been a huge ongoing issue. The books were first, so there are six books that were first introduced back in December, January, and they are elementary level story books that include LGBTQ characters or themes, or even just mention. And they were introduced into the supplemental English curriculum just to, you know, uh, greater diversity, greater increase the diversity of the school district's offerings and just emphasize its inclusivity to be more reflective of the families that exist in MCBS. And then up in March, the school district announced a policy clarification saying that they were not going to allow parents to opt their kids out of those books because apparently some parents had been doing that. And that's when the outcry started for real. And Parents filed a lawsuit in May alleging that the 
no opt-out approach to the curriculum violated their constitutional rights to direct their kids' education. And we've been going ever since. There have been multiple protests over the summer. Hundreds and hundreds of parents and community members have shown up. There have been petitions. There's been, at this point, dozens of school board testimonies about the opt-out. It's, it's definitely been the biggest thing this school year. What's it been like to cover? It's been intense. It's been a lot, for sure. There's a lot of community eyes on you and a lot of scrutiny. So just trying to include as many voices as possible and as many perspectives has been really key, I think. What has it been like for you to cover as someone who is LGBTQ plus? It's been a little bit tricky. Obviously, I have my own opinions. And as a journalist, that can be really tricky to handle. There's a quote from the founder of Translash Media about how journalists, their job is not to be objective, it's to be fair. And I think that's very true. There's a really big push right now in media, I think, towards reconsidering what it means to be objective in journalism. And I think it's really important that we all acknowledge that everybody has their sets of opinions and everybody has their beliefs. And there's, you can't ignore that. You can't pretend that it's not true. But regardless, giving everybody a fair shake and doing your best to represent people's points of view is important. And so that's what I've been trying to do really hard is just be really respectful of everybody's point of view, even if I personally couldn't disagree more with them. Being able to be civil, listen to them, empathize with where they're coming from, and represent what they're saying to me honestly in my reporting. Have you had any interesting experiences with with groups or people? The, particularly those of the, the conservative viewpoint on this. Yeah, it's been interesting, especially being a non-binary reporter. Like there's no getting around that I am queer. You know, like people know right off the bat. And so that can make for interesting dynamics when I'm trying to interview people who might not like que queer people very much or uh, agree with how to treat queer people. But that said, I've had some really great relationships with some of the folks on the pro-opt-out side of the debate. The people from Center for American Islamic Relations, CARE, and the people from Family Rights for Religious Freedom, which is a local like parents coalition run by Muslim and Christian folks. A lot of the local groups here in MoCo have been very civil with me, very respectful, very candid and willing to share with me even keep me abreast of developments. So I've really appreciated that relationship. And I think just, again, the transparency and honesty and the willingness to hear them out is really key to establishing that relationship. That said, there's also been some national groups that have tried to kind of sneak in and co-opt the movement, so to speak. Moms for Liberty is a huge national group very right-wing conservative group. They were very instrumental in Florida in passing the Don't Say Gay Bill. And they have chapters all across the U.S., including in Montgomery County, where they've been involved in the opt-out stuff. They've showed up to the protests and written, they presented testimonies to the school board and whatnot. And my relationship with them has been a little bit more rocky and a little bit trickier. They, I kind of, I... So I got a newsletter from them saying that they were going to host a protest. Then they told me to my face that they weren't hosting a protest. And when I called them out on it, they got really hissy about it and now refused to speak to me. So 
that's been interesting. They've been kind of vocal on social media about calling me an activist reporter and whatnot. There's been misgendering from some folks on the right. Just, you know, some low blows, but you just, you learn to let it roll off your back. I interviewed a woman from the Heckinger Report who, when she was a student, she's a Muslim woman, full attire, covered a Trump rally in South Carolina. And she said for a moment that she felt unsafe, but then she said, you know what? I'm here. I'm going to do this. And she kind of, she acknowledged that all these people were staring at her. Have you had any moments of feeling unsafe within it or just being nervous or uncomfortable? And how did you get through those? Yeah. As I said, there have been several protests in front of the school board over the summer. One of them, probably at least a thousand people showed up. And that was a little bit unnerving, especially knowing the content of what they were protesting. But I, that particular protest, the really big one, I reached out to my news outlet, my team, and we ended up sending a few folks with me to help cover it, especially just because it was so big and it's just one person and but that really helped just to have that support. So I think when you're able to, being able to have support from your your team members is really important and can help. But also just knowing that you're a reporter, you're in a public space. If people are gonna do anything to make you uncomfortable, you always have the power to leave. And just, you know, going in with a thick skin and knowing it's gonna be okay. What's the actual experience of doing the writing like for you? kind of a whirlwind. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I disassociate for like half an hour until it's done. I'm like, wow, there it is. The fun part is always the interviewing and talking to people and then it just kind of runs together. It feels like a little puzzle just fitting all the different pieces together. I would presume too that given that at least with court reporting equipment that you can type 130 words a minute, that you can get through stories faster than certainly I could or, or most other journalists. How does that help? It definitely helps. I never have to like transcribe my interviews afterwards because I'm literally typing while they're talking to me. So that cuts down on time a lot. I know a lot of my colleagues use like Otter and those kinds of software, which that's definitely a little mini superpower of mine is I could just type my interview transcript as I'm having the interview. That would certainly come in handy for me a lot. <laughs> so one of the things I noticed is maybe this was just coincidental with what I read, but I don't think so. You're working on a lot of ongoing stories. Your articles have a ton of hyperlinks in them. And I'm curious if this is a philosophical thing across the website and just, yeah, I guess that though, I'm guessing it doesn't add considerable time because of how fast you type, but it, is it a philosophical thing? That is so interesting that you mentioned that because nobody has ever like brought that up before, but it definitely is like a choice of mine to include as many hyperlinks as possible because I'm of the mind that if I'm writing a story, I want my reader to have as much context as possible. And I know, again, I can't cover it all. I can't include every possible detail. So it's kind of my way of saying like, look, I'm I'm summarizing some key points that I think were important, but if you want the full story, like here's the context, I'm not going to hide that from you because, you know, that's not my role. So what are the big coverage areas uh, beyond the story? Big coverage areas beyond the story? Like um, in, in, what other things do you cover at, at MoCo 360 besides this? I mean, everything education related, <laughs> mostly Montgomery County Public Schools. But yeah, anything related to school board policies, 
happenings in the school. You mentioned hate bias incidents and, you know, student absenteeism has been a huge thing this past year. Drug use in schools, reporting on things that people are concerned about, things that people want changed, things that people are proud of. Also, oh, we're, we're a very small news outlet, so like, there, which is kind of fun because there will also be like opportunities for me to fill in on other beats too. So sometimes there, you'll see my name on like a crime story or something like that. Is there something in particular that you like covering besides the hard news of education? I love being in a courtroom. So any chance I get to go sit through some kind of court hearing or something, I love that. Or like reading over state's attorney documents and statement of charges and all that. I There's definitely part of me that still kind of misses the legal field. So but that sounds like it goes back to the Encyclopedia Brown detective yes. uh, aspect of things. So you've also done a considerable amount of reporting in the past specific to transgender issues. Three examples, a piece on misinformation about reproductive health and the community being ill-equipped to deal with the issues involved. You wrote about how Maryland banned the LGBTQ panic defense that basically allowed an out for those accused of murder to claim that the violence was justified because of the victim re uh, revealing their sexual identity. And you profiled the executive director of Trans Maryland, who you identified as a superhero. Uh, do you have a piece that you're particularly proud of within that area of reporting that you'd like to share the details of? I think it kind of, it back to the opt-out stuff, but before it became the opt-out stuff, we reported early on about the introduction of the books and where it could have warranted just a quick little brief on here's the new books, blah, blah, blah. We really took it an extra step and did kind of a deep dive into how these books were introduced, why it's important to have LGBTQ inclusive books in classes, included studies, again, with the hyperlinks, several like peer-reviewed studies on why this has a positive impact on students and why that positive impact is so important to their mental health and well-being. And I was just, I was, I'm really proud anytime I get to highlight positive LGBTQ stories and themes because you know so often we're in the news because something terrible is happening to us or we're being targeted again but being able to include positive things and not just positive policies being implemented but people's positive stories is just very heartening to me and i was really proud of how that piece turned out what kind of reading reaction do you get usually very positive i mean there's always a contingent that's not happy and calls us both and blah 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 but i think most people are very appreciative of the information and the context. Are there areas within transgender issues, LGBTQ issues that are short of coverage that are in, in greater need of it? Yes. I mean, I just think in general, we don't tell enough trans, non-binary, queer stories, positive or negative. Trans healthcare is a huge thing right now that's in jeopardy, both nationally and locally. And like, as I mentioned, positive stories as well. Like when there is a trans or queer story in the news, it's because we're under attack in some form or another. And the victories or the small happy things, the trans joy doesn't get showcased as much. And I think that's really important to include. And also, I just think that trans and queer voices should be included in stories, even when they're not on trans and queer issues. You know, they're just people like the rest of us and their voices matter even when they're not talking about healthcare or bathrooms or things like that. So right. 
just including those voices and normalizing having diverse voices on a number of topics is really important. And not just during Pride Month. Yes, not just yep. during Pride Month. So I was looking at your personal website, looked like the site was a little old, but a couple of things struck me about it. One was a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald with emphasis on the idea of you're not alone. The other, the last sentence that you had on the front page, I'm here to listen. What does being a good listener mean to you? Being a good listener to me means being empathetic, really not just passively listening, but actively listening to what somebody is telling you and what they're trying to tell you, really taking the effort because it is an effort to put yourself in that person's shoes and hear their story and try to understand it. How is M the, the listener now compared to M the listener 10 years ago? A much more humble listener, I think. I think being an empathetic listener requires a huge degree of humility and just grace with yourself and with the person that you're listening to. I typically ask these questions toward the end of the interview, a couple of different things. How has being a journalist shaped how you view the world? It's made me a lot more curious and I'm really thankful for that and a lot more confident in being curious. Like I said, growing up, I was not taught. I was taught that we could question things, but it had to be the right questions to the right people and anything outside of that bounds was frowned upon rebellious and dangerous and blah 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 and being a journalist taught me that there is no fear in questioning things and that the more emboldened you are to ask questions the better off you are for it and it also just it gave me confidence to ask the questions that I wanted answers to People think that only journalists can do reporting, but anybody can do reporting. If you have a question about a policy at your local school or your local government or anything, you can call that office up. You can file a documents request. There's no pedigree needed to do those things or to ask those questions. Anybody can do it. And I just think that's really cool. And I now find myself even outside of work hours, just being more curious and asking more nosy questions just because I want to. And I think everybody <laughs> should do that. <laughs> How do you feel about the opportunities that journalism presents to you as a transgender non-binary in 2023? I think it is more important than ever before, considering how much we, our community is under attack right now, to be telling trans and non-binary stories and to be giving those voices a platform. And so I take that as a huge responsibility and something that I try to do all the time. But I'm very privileged just to be a trans non-binary journalist because it means that I get to tell these stories and I get to highlight these issues and it gives me a unique ability to connect with that community. Trans and non-binary folks are historically not very trusting of the media for understandable reasons. But when you know that the person that you're talking to gets it, you're more willing to entrust your story to them. And I'm so thankful for that because it's it's resulted in so many great stories and so many so many people's perspectives being shared that otherwise wouldn't have been shared. I would imagine that you kind of alluded to there's a lot of pressure in this business, particularly being in the position and situation that you're in. How do you manage your mental health? I am not historically the best at it, but I'm doing my best. I'm very much like a, a type A person, a workaholic kind of person that like, if I'm working on a really good story, I'm going to give it my all, even if it's not nine to five. So setting those 
work-life boundaries are really important for me and something I'm still actively working on, especially with all of this crazy news going on right now in Montgomery County. But just making sure that I find time every week at least to just disconnect, put my phone away, hang out with my crazy pets and my partner and just do something fun, read a good book, preferably fiction. And yeah, just find time to recharge and connect with people that matter to me and find that joy is really, really important. I don't always do it well, but I try. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization, and you can salute more than one if you like, that you would like to salute for their good work? Oh, yeah. The first person that comes to mind is Erin Reed. She's a trans journalist. She's an independent journalist who runs her own site where she tracks trans anti-trans legislation across the country. She has made incredible resources for trans people. And I'm just continuously in awe of how on top she is of all of the things that are happening everywhere legislatively. It's got to be one of the roughest beats to cover as a trans journalist to just see our rights being constantly attacked at every level of the government. But she is consistently just so on top of things and so thorough in making those those things available to everybody. And I'm just, I'm really appreciative of the level of transparency that she brings to the government. And based in Maryland as well, yes. checking her, her Twitter. MSP, education reporter for MoCo 360 Media. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. We will certainly be following your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.